Well, good evening and welcome. This is A Reason for Hope. We're very glad to be with you once again. We are here to receive and with the Lord's help, answer your questions on the Bible, God's Word, the Bible. That's right. If you have questions on the Bible, maybe a scripture or a passage of scripture that um, has uh, confused you or you'd like to delve deeper into, maybe uh, world events you'd like a biblical perspective on, maybe you're going through something in your, in your life, in your world, and would like um, some insight from God's Word, there's no um, stupid question. Can I say that? Can I use that word? <laughs> as long as it's an honest question from the heart, um, seeking an answer from God's Word, we're here to, to endeavor to do that uh, with you. Today in the studio, my name is Dave Robson. I'm your host today, and with us, as often is the case, is Pastor Sean Richards. How are you doing today? Good. It sounded like a Bob Ross painting show when we first started. <laughs> well, that's a reason for hope. I don't quite very, have his hair, but uh, I guess very I relaxing. And that's a positive. Is it? I think. <laughs> I'm like the I'm like never the mind, anti Bob I, Ross. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also with us is uh, senior pastor Scott Richards as well. How are you doing? That would today? be me. Yes. That'd be you. Yeah. Well, and I'm delighted to be here. It's always uh, exciting to dig into God's Word, and you never know uh, where the conversation is going to go. It's all up to our audience. That's that's right, yeah. and that is that is certainly one of the exciting parts of it, that we never know where it's going to go. And um, Pastor Scott is a senior pastor here at Calvary Christian Fellowship, where we are broadcasting from. A Reason for Hope is a ministry and outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship. So you can join us live uh, at our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, also on Facebook at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. On YouTube, we're at A Reason for Hope. You can find us there. That's the name of the channel. If you go to your app store on your mobile device, you will find an app, a Calvary Christian Fellowship. You can watch us live there as well. Also on Roku and Apple TV, should you want to watch us on the big screen. And why wouldn't you want to watch us on the big screen? <laughs> I can give you it's many... almost like inviting us into your home. <laughs> it Just is. bring out some snacks Absolutely. and we're good. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It helps keep the kids away yeah. from the television yeah. set yeah. to see our, our big mugs on there. Um, but you can join us in those ways. If you're listening to us on Reach Radio or one of the radio affiliates, uh, you are listening to our last show pre-recorded. Um, so please send us your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope all spelled out there at gmail.com, and we'll uh, endeavor to get your question on our next show. And consider when you're not on your drive time joining us on one of our live platforms where you can interact through the chat functions. And again, please send us your questions. I will be personally monitoring all those platforms as your questions come in, and as time allows, we try to get to those questions, and we certainly appreciate you being part of the broadcast today, because as we said, it's guided by your questions. So it's a, a big step of faith, but we have uh, great uh, uh, equipment to navigate those questions in God's Word, yeah. and certainly our guests here today. So uh, Sean, would you like to pray for us as we delve on in? Be happy to. Be Dad, great. thank you that we have the chance of being in your Word among your people, and we pray in your Spirit. Equip us to not only answer these questions with your word, but also with your heart, that your people would be edified, that you would be glorified, and that we would continue to be found faithful in what you've called us to. Thank you again that you've given us even uh, stewardship over the little things, and if people are going to participate, I pray that they would be listening as well. Allow us to not only just continue to bear testimony to your word as able to stand on its two feet, but that you continue to honor your word, even above your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Mm. Amen. 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 All right. Uh, we got an email uh, from someone who, by the way, is part of our local fellowship from Katie. Did we not? We did, yeah. Would you like to get to that first? Yeah, let's start with that. Yeah. It's a two-part question, of course, but you uh, 
Jesus himself said, let the little children come to me. Their five-year-old daughter had a particular question I wanted to start with. Right, yeah. She <laughs> Those may are be... usually the best, by the way. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah, like you say, that childlike faith. Yes, yeah. Wilder's um, five years old. Is that maybe the youngest uh, question um, asker you've had? I think we had one from a four-year-old once. Really? It's it's close. And Yeah, yeah. any younger yeah. than, yeah. than uh, English is probably not that great. But yeah, Wilder's question, and thank you for it, is did Jesus know that Satan would be bad? And we actually had, I think last week, a question like that about mm -hmm. sort of sin in heaven. How did Satan, how did Lucifer kind of sin in heaven? And how is that possible? You know, a place where is there no sin in heaven? How was he, how was he able to rebel against God to the point where he was cast out? That kind of idea. Yeah, and obviously it's the greatest challenge for anyone answering Bible questions because you're need to scope your audience as well. If I were to go into... Read the room, as it yeah, were. Yeah. Uh, the, the semantics of meta-ethics and the nature of eternity and the, the uh, concept of a cherub rebelling, I'd be confused, let alone a five-year-old. So we need to speak this in plain English. Um, first of all, thank you, Wilder, for the question. When we're talking about Jesus, and you're right in recognizing him as knowing everything as God, would he have known that Satan would be bad, and then the next question would be, so why'd he make someone that would be bad? And the important thing to remember is like, for example, and we won't give out personal details about your family, but like your father is the one who's responsible for discipline in the home, does he punish you before you've done something bad or afterwards? And that's what's most important. When God punishes people, it's for doing the wrong things not of the possibility, or even, dare I say, the guarantee that they'll do wrong things. And we see this not just with angels like Satan, but also with people like the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter was someone who, by the way, not only did Judas Iscariot betray Jesus, you remember mean old Judas, the Apostle Peter betrayed Jesus too that night, not once, but three times. Three times yeah. And yet Jesus, before he even committed the act before he did something evil, Jesus told him that he would fall and then said, when you are restored, strengthen your brethren. So the question isn't God's nature in knowing that Satan would have been bad. He knows everything. The question isn't even necessarily, does God punish evil or does he set things up for punishment? That's obviously not the God that we know. What we need to work with is how does he treat angels differently from people. And there is an answer to that, isn't there? Yeah, uh, it's uh, an interesting in, interesting passage indeed. And again, we're doing our best here, uh, as J. Vernon McGee was famously quoted saying, is putting the cookies on the bottom shelf where the kitties can get at them. You know, uh, Wilder, if you're listening to this, and uh, Katie and uh, Ben, if you're listening to this, you want to relate this to Wilder, you know, maybe the best way to go about it is to say that angels are different than human beings. Uh, they have a real advantage over us in that they are able to see God and actually be in his presence. The Bible tells us that to whom much is given, much is required. You know, when we as human beings approach God, we can't see him with our eyes or, or in most cases hear him with our ears, but the angels could. And because of that, they were held to a higher standard. Uh, as far as uh, did God know that Satan was going to be bad? Yeah, I think he knows all things, but that didn't mean that Satan didn't have a choice. Satan could choose 
to be bad. And, and because angels, like Satan was before his fall, uh, have this advantage of being able to see God face to face, the Bible tells us that there's no aid for angels, that angels can't get saved. They can't backtrack, if you will, on that decision. They might regret it, but they're, uh, in a sense, confirmed in their badness, if you will. And uh, we as human beings, when we do bad things, we're different. Uh, God gives us the opportunity to be able to turn back to him and to ask him to forgive us. And uh, God will forgive every person who turns back to him and does ask him to forgive. That's why Jesus died for us. That's why he rose from the dead, so that that forgiveness from God could be made available there. So difference between us and angels, uh, we're kind of physical human beings. Angels are, are spirits. They're God's servants, uh, ministers of fire. Uh, interesting descriptions of angels we find there. But that's, that's the difference there. I guess uh, the other issue that comes up in all of this is uh, one that applies across the board, even to humanity, and maybe we can go a little deeper into this. Why did God make human beings if he knew that we were going to turn away from him and all the awful things that have happened in this world were going to come out of that? Yeah, and that's, again, just like the question is oftentimes asked, if did God set us up for failure, or and if so, why did this world go so wrong under the allowance and stewardship of a perfect and all-powerful God. And this is, of course, kind of going into more advanced topics, a broader audience. We need to make sure that we're not imposing onto God things that just aren't him, that we need to hold him to what he said about himself, not what we think he ought to be. We don't believe in a God whose responsibility is to make us feel good all the time. You can read 2 Corinthians, where Paul the Apostle was exposed to not a very good time and never once considered this as a uh, short deal that he had with God. In fact, he fully expected it. Likewise, when we're talking about the question, okay, so if God's concern isn't to make us feel good all the time, that's what I want, but not what he wants, where are his priorities then? And the answer is given to us in Scripture, that he's interested in his glory, to show himself for who he is, his weightiness, if you will. That's what glory means, weight or worth. So when we look at the possible worlds God could have made, and again, this isn't hypothetical, this is a philosophical examination of this in alternatives, a Sherlock Holmes approach, if you will. So what kind of world would God have made if he only allowed goodness to exist, nothing apart from himself? Well, he wouldn't have made a world, so that's out. The second kind of world God could have created where there was no possibility for any other nature than his own to be exercised, which again wouldn't be a habitable world. It would just be an expansion, a new form in which God would manifest. There's no real point to that. He already enjoyed himself for eternity. The third possible world is where we see God emphasizing justice, that evil is not allowed to prevail in this world. Instantaneous justice, instantaneous retribution for evil. If there's anything that will cause harm or a deviation from God's nature, usually both, God will eliminate it immediately. But then what kind of world would that be? It would be a world that existed for a bit until Adam and Eve sinned, and then the human race would have ended the moment it rebelled. It, again, would not be the world we're living with. 
So if we can assume some things about God, that A, he does all things well, we can go off of Genesis 18.25 for that, and other, uh, I guess, nuanced details like the fact that God is not only going to do all things well, but knew the consequences of the things he did and considered the price worthwhile, what kind of world do we live in? And this is one where he is most glorified. And that is what? Not in his virtue of justice, like the third world. Not in his virtue of holiness, like the second world. Not even in the virtue of just him being him, like the first world. The fourth kind of world, the world we're living in, is the kind of world that emphasizes what? The uh, nature of God expressed in love. Now note, not love as Hollywood or the world defines it, but love as was expressed and demonstrated in history, a self-sacrificial love, seeking the well-being even of someone who hates you, something that's against us as human beings by nature, but is who God is by nature. You can read this in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. God's love is specifically demonstrated to the undeserving. It's him being good even when we are bad. And this is the point. If you make a kind of world where that kind of love can exist, you allow for the existence of the ultimate good, God's love, but it also includes with it the allowance, note this, this, not of justice, but the permitting of the ultimate evil, rejection and rebellion against God. Now note, we don't go off of this with limited information or hidden information, like the atheist would say, oh, so just God just made a world that would destroy itself. No, there would be, in fact, a new heavens and a new earth. We're going to discuss the implications of that tonight in our Wednesday night study in Revelation 21. Oh, so God just made a world where evil people would be given permission to do all these horrible things to other people. No, the bad guys will be punished and answer for their crimes. Well, the point of emphasis was the only kind of world that we see God most glorified in is a one that would allow for the existence of evil. Because if God, and again, dealing with alternatives, if God made a world where there was no other choice, that doesn't sound like a perfectly loving being. That sounds like some, you know, anime obsessed girlfriend that's, you know, assassinating competition for her love interest in a high school, right? That's kind of creepy. (laughs) We're making sure that we're representing God properly in light of the entirety of Scripture and then going with the information we actually have. And if the belief in God is a rational one, if the existence of God can be demonstrated, and we can go through that if you have follow-up questions to anyone listening, but also if we can take the Bible's presentation of God in its entirety to include love and define love as allowing for the wrong decision, but also permitting the greatest possible decision, then we see the world we live in today. It's not the prevention of evil, it is the promotion, the allowance, the only kind of world where the possibility of ultimate good could exist. That comes with a risk, but one that God was willing to undergo. Because note in Revelation 13, and I believe it's verse 8, it says that Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. God knew what he was getting into when he made us and still found the glorification of himself in the process worthwhile, that we would share in that glory, that it's not just for his benefit, but also for ours, because he is a selfless being. This is also where doctrines like the Trinity come in, because you can't be a selfless and a monad being at the same time. What were you doing for all eternity? And that's some infinite paradox, that's the point. 
So note those points to those listening and then bringing it back to a human level for Wilder. Just understand that God is good by nature. And if we can assume that, we can at least take him at face value to mean what he said about himself. Then we have to work with the fact that people are the problem, not him. And if God is the solution, well, it just doesn't make much sense to blame the solution for the problem, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Wilder, for that question. You know, Wilder calls me Uncle Dave. There's there's several kids in the church that have got to know me on that level. It's such a blessing. Uncle Dave, to be called that. I'm not her uncle by, by blood, but just um, she sees me that way, which is a real blessing. And I was thinking what a... It, it, that choice, you know, it makes it makes sense, and it's a beautiful thing that we have a choice. You know, God gives us that that choice, even though that's such a, you know, trying to figure out how that works. But thinking about um, uh, Wilder, I know being around her parents, they often give her a choice. Like Wilder, you know, we need to leave. Do you want two more minutes or five more minutes? And she usually says, you know, five more minutes. But the point is, she feels like she has a choice, and she can choose instead of saying we're leaving now or we're leaving in two minutes. And it's such a, a great parenting technique to give a choice, you know, and I'm, I'm a parent to a 12-year-old and a 14-year-old now, pray for me, but I'm finding that giving them a choice is, is the way to get the, the most out of them, feeling like they, they can choose to do things and find a way, like there's something I want them to do, but I need to kind of give them a choice over that. So it kind of makes sense when we think about it that giving a choice is a loving thing, you know, for God to do and not, not like we're robots or you will do this, but that we have that free will, but with that comes bad choices. And, yeah, it's yeah. inefficient, but God's not an efficient being. He doesn't make yeah. things because they work the best possible way. The goal needs to be defined, and then the way he went about it is going to make more sense. It's like saying, well, this phone is defective because the battery life doesn't last as long as I like it to. Well, the one who designed the phone wasn't interested in battery life. He was interested in functionality and other things. You need to ask what the intent of the maker was not to impose your preferred definition of the maker, which was the thesis of a very poorly written book, The Panda's Thumb, unfortunately written by a biologist who also pretended to be a philosopher. I won't mention his name. But the point being made is that you can't assume God ought to do things this way when he's told you what he's done and why he did it. At least let him stand or fall on what he said, not what you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. makes sense. Um, so in the same email from, from Wilder's mom, uh, Katie, who is your favorite person in scripture who is not God? She said, we can't cheat and just say Jesus because that's always the answer. Um, and why? Who's your favorite person in scripture and why? Well, it varies. Uh, you know, it's like asking, uh, what's your favorite book of the Bible? It's usually the one that I'm, I'm reading through at a, at a particular time. Right. I, I think uh, right now I'm really enamored uh, with the work that God did in the life of Simon Peter. Uh, because here was a guy that was so uh, filled with faults and flaws. He had very natural strengths, but every strength he had seemingly had a corresponding weakness. And you know, we're going through the book of Acts right now on uh, Sunday mornings, and uh, Peter obviously is going to play a really prominent role in the life of the early church. But the thing that I really love uh, about Peter is that he's not made into some super saint with a high beam halo. Uh, the more you get to know him, the more you get to see that um, even uh, beyond, as you mentioned, him denying the Lord three times, uh, even putting his foot in his mouth and trying to tell Jesus his business uh, when he told him he wasn't going to be crucified and it's not going to happen to him, and the Lord had to say, get thee behind me, Satan. 
uh, you know, there were still those uh, wonderful uh, experiences that he had where the Lord did speak to him and let him know that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. That the same guy who was such a coward at one point boldly stood up and proclaimed the resurrection uh, in, in uh, Acts chapter 2. He's going to face the same seasoned political uh, group of power brokers uh, that railroaded Jesus into death. And just seeing the transforming work of the Holy Spirit on the one side of the coin, I just, I just love the guy. I love watching that because I can relate so much to uh, the old three steps forward, two steps back thing. Mm. Uh, but the other thing that's really encouraging to me about Simon Peter is even though he got things right, and we would like to, if we were concocting the Bible as uh, our own rah-rah book or some uh, manual to start an organization, uh, we'd probably present him in the best possible light. But this same Simon Peter uh, has to be dragged kicking and screaming, for instance, to share the good news with uh, a bunch of uh, unworthy Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. Uh, when he went to Antioch, uh, he was so intimidated by the people that came down from Jerusalem, James' friends and so on, that he withdrew from being around Gentiles. And, you know, when I look at that and I see, okay, here's a guy who definitely loved the Lord, uh, definitely wanted to be used by God, was used by God in some powerful ways, uh, got a little full of himself at times, got a little bit out of his lane, if you will, uh, a, a guy uh, that on the one side of the coin uh, was filled with the Holy Spirit and uh, rocked the world at, at the, the Sermon of Pentecost and so on, uh, but then turned around in uh, Antioch and, in essence, introduced one of the first heresies into the church. So I guess I look at Peter, and uh, the one of the reasons I love the guy is I think there's hope for me. So um, what about yeah, you, Sean? Yeah. If I could divide it into Old and New Testament, if that's not cheating. Uh, in it's the cheating. In the Old Testament, it would be <laughs> <Just> Micaiah. <laughs> Believe it or not, yeah. Micaiah is definitely a guy that I love as far as his impact, because even though it was brief and seemingly inconsequential, he was the individual in the books of Kings where uh, King Ahaz, or Ahab rather, was uh, um, teaming up with Team Jehoshaphat and uh, tried to play the holy roller, but of course had his false prophets around him, and he was the one guy he didn't want to hear from, because as soon as Micaiah got in the room, he's just like, oh great, I'm going to hear a truth I don't want to hear. That's the kind of teacher I aspire to be, even if it's in a very low bottom tier level. He not only spoke the truth, yeah. regardless of what it would cost him, which is again, what I'm trying to do in my ministry, but he had a little fun with it along the way as well. He started off sarcastic and got this king cursing him out. Then he's just like, okay, well, uh, here's a vision, and yeah. then reveals the truth, and then he throws him in prison, and then gets a parting shot in where he's just like, hey, if I'm not a prophet of God, you're going to come back alive. So that uh, definite aura that I relate to personally, again, much like anything else, I'm not the going for the big shots. I know people that I would relate to on a personal level. Micaiah is hopefully the person that when God's done with this work in my heart that I would be if called to that kind of ministry to a political leader. The New Testament person, again, under the radar, kind of uh, underappreciated and looked over. My favorite New Testament character is Apollos, the guy who is mentioned very briefly in the book of First and Second Corinthians, but he was essentially the Bible teacher to the church in Corinth. After Paul had planted the church, he was the guy who was teaching these people. And 
if you've read the books of First and Second Corinthians, you know that church was a mess, but never once is Apollos com- uh, condemned mm. for either his poor teaching or his poor handling or poor leadership. He was doing the best that he could. Yeah. They, the church, was the one making all the mistakes, but he remained faithful in just simply teaching the word, and what people did with it, they answered for as well. Again, the kind of teacher I'm trying to be that regardless of, much like in the junior high and uh, high school ministry, they're not always listening, but I'm going to be doing the right thing. I want to answer for what I did, and I think Apollos is a model of that. Mm -hmm. So those are my uh, Old and New Testament favorites, Micaiah and Apollos. Great. Yeah, and there's there's so many... um characters that we see that we can relate to. I think for me, if I can share, is probably the Apostle Paul. Um, I love, sure. you know, yeah. someone, yeah, I mean, a big one of the big ones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, to go from someone who, you know, persecuting the church to writing a big chunk of the New Testament. And I just seem to, when scripture comes to mind, it tends to be something that Paul wrote. <laughs> yeah, reason, I agree. I either say, you know, Paul said, or I say it and like, where was that? Oh yeah, Paul said that, you know, so. Um, I don't, I don't know why I just find him relatable and just the humility, you know, to how he shares and, you know, I'm the chiefest of sinners and, you know, but that, that kind of thing. And yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Great. Thank you for that question, Katie and Wilder. And um, we hope that helps you out. We have a question from Bobby. Uh, what does no weapon formed against me shall prosper mean? He's confused about that. Well, What's the context of that? Yeah, that, that, that is a, that's a great question because that uh, tends to, uh, throw uh, people for a loop. I don't know if Bobby is uh, male or female here uh, based upon the spelling, yeah. but, uh, but Bobby, uh, you know, this is one of those verses that gets thrown out quite a bit by people in uh, the Pentecostal side of things, uh, people that tell you uh, to claim certain scriptures and uh, you can see them come to pass within your life. It's a quote from Isaiah 54 in verse 17 that says, no weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. Well, at first blush, if that's all the data we had to go on, Bobby, uh, we might think that, uh, boy, that means that Christians don't have to worry about getting shot, because no weapon formed against you Mm. is ever going to prosper. Uh, You never have to worry about uh, losing a debate or being put down because no tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. No Christian will ever end up in jail. No Christian will ever uh, have these kind of uh, oppositions happening to them in their lives. And as I mentioned, if that's all the data that we had to deal with, uh, we might actually come to that particular conclusion. Uh, But uh, it's always good when you hear something like that, Bobby, to first of all, find where it is in the Bible. And you go, well, I'm not really good at finding things in the Bible. Here's something that can help you with that. Uh, There are computer programs like Blue Letter Bible. Uh, Go to blueletterbible.org and they have what's called a concordance program. And uh, you just look right up top there. And if you want to find a verse, you just type it in, uh, in whatever translation you'd like. And they've got a bazillion of them there. And uh, you can uh, track these things down. So when you see a passage like that, like in Isaiah 54, okay, you find the passage. And in order to really understand what's being said in a particular passage and what's not being said, and that's really important to understand, there's a distinction there, uh, you, you have to say, okay, maybe I need to read a few verses beforehand that flow into this. Maybe I need to find out what is actually 
being discussed here. Well, if you go back a few verses to Isaiah 54 and verse 11, you get a little focus on what this passage means and doesn't mean. Uh, It starts out with God saying, O you afflicted one, tossed with tempest and not comforted. Behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundation with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystal, and all of your walls of precious stones. All of your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established, you shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it will not come near you. Indeed, they shall surely assemble, but not because of me. Whoever assembles against you shall fall for your sake. Behold, I have created the blacksmith who blows the coals in the fire, brings forth an instrument for his work, and I have created the spoiler to destroy. No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me. Okay, so what is the context here? The context here is the people of Israel during Isaiah's time were besieged by some pretty intimidating enemies on either side. At one point, the Assyrians, who uh, were so feared, uh, not just uh, as, as far as conquerors go, but if you were killed by the Assyrians, you had to worry about that. Even worse, would be surviving because they were masters at torture and uh, made sure that any people they conquered would uh, suffer tremendously. Well, that's what Israel was looking at. Uh, in fact, northern Israel, the ten tribes, were taken into captivity during Isaiah's time uh, by the uh, Assyrians. And so it was a real time of fear and worry. And so uh, what the Lord is dealing with here, he calls them, you know, you afflicted one, tossed with temp- tempest and not comforted. He tells them exactly what's going on. He tells them he understands their emotional state. That's really important to understand. But he's saying, right now things are tough, but it won't always be that way. And then he begins to give them a picture of what their ultimate destination is going to be. Uh, And and he describes it in an interesting way, especially in light of what we're going to be teaching tonight uh, in about an hour or so at uh, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson on the new Jerusalem and what the eternal state is going to be like. He says, I will lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundation with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystal, and your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught, not of the Lord, but by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Now, what's being talked about here is what the culmination of God's plan for Israel is going to be. At that point in time, they were going to go through some rough patches and some difficult times, but ultimately, uh, no weapon formed against them was going to prosper. That is in an eternal, final sense. Uh, Jesus kind of emphasized this point when he says, don't fear those who can kill your body, but can't touch your soul. That's the sense in which they were prospering, that they would ultimately destroy you instead of finitely remove this body. Yeah, so, you know, Jesus kind of put it this way. Uh, In this world, you will have tribulation, but fear not, for I've overcome the world. Well, that tells me a couple things as a believer in in Christ. Jesus promised me, and this is not the kind of stuff that we usually look up in our Jesus person pocket promise book, but Jesus promised me that in this world, I'm going to have hard times. I'm going to experience rough things, Mm -hmm. and, and it only makes sense. Uh, I remember uh, Jeffrey Van Vonderen, author and counselor, once said at a seminar I went to, if you say the same sort of things that Jesus said, 
the same sort of people that he said them to, you're going to get what he got. Uh, Jesus didn't have the get-out-of-jail-free card uh, as far as trials and tribulations in this life either. And we won't if we follow him. However, just as Jesus suffered and then overcame even death itself, raised into heavenly glory, seated at the right hand of God, he's coming back not to save the world, but to rule and to reign in glory. So we will follow a similar path. And nobody and nothing can separate us from the love of God. I really want to emphasize that to you because this is what's, what's talking about here. Uh, have Christians been mowed down because of their faith? Have uh, Islamic scimitars beheaded Christians? Even in our day and age, it still goes on in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, you know, I think about uh, our, our uh, wonderful listeners that uh, tune in from Nigeria. This is a, a possibility of life of the Boko Haram movement uh, that, it, that goes on there. Those weapons seem to be prospering, right? Mm-hmm. But not to any eternal end. God is going to balance the books. And it's been said, the one who rejoices last rejoices best. So what we got to really be careful about, and, and bless their hearts, you know, I, I start out my Christian life in this sort of neck of the Christian woods where you get these promises in God's word and you claim this promise, and by golly, you know, you can take it to the bank. Uh, by his stripes, we're healed. That means I never have to be sick ever again. Well, the problem with that is in the context in which it was shared in Isaiah 53, it's talking about healing from sin and the ultimate uh, spiritual malady that's going to separate us from God that Jesus would take care of one day. Does that mean I can say to that, okay, if I've claimed this verse the right way and really hold my breath and uh, you know, say, God, you got to do this for me, then I'll never have to be sick again? No, doesn't mean that. But it does mean that God is going to heal us from our ultimate malady, and that is sin and death. So we've got to be really careful about picking and choosing, say, a line or a snippet from the Bible, and then coming to God and saying, hey, I got this line and snippet from the Bible. you got to do this. You were telling me about a conversation that you had uh, that was pretty meaningful along these lines about making a distinction between what God promises and what he doesn't. Well, you'd have to narrow it down. I encounter that quite a lot. Well, it was a, a family that had just lost their dad. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, one, of the, Basically, one of the sons came yeah, to you. The hope was and the belief was by the individual uh, that God's got this, that he's going to make my father get better here. And again, I wasn't given any prophetic <laughs> gifts in this sense or anything. I'd just been around the bend a few times and wanted to avoid heartache, especially for someone that I knew. And the individual just said, you know, I, I trust God that he's going to make my dad better. And I just, again, as tactless but graciously as I could, uh, told him, look, we, I'm saying this because I love you, but just make sure that you don't hold God to promises he didn't actually make. Because what I want isn't always the case, even though it sounds right to me and that in the immediate sense this could be the best possible thing from my perspective, if God does something different, atheists have set themselves up for their worldview by making claims about God, holding him to those things, and then abandoning him when he didn't follow through on what I decided he ought to do. Right. And I wanted to prevent that as much as possible. And again, even if you can go chapter and verse to the Bible, and it's usually got that little uh, footnote of the letter B because it's only a third of the verse or the second half, that's, again, 
dodgy, <laughs> for lack of a better term. We want to make sure that our confidence, our reasons for trusting God, are founded in his word as it's spoken, not just how it's written or presented. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, the faith movement, as it is called, mm-hmm. tends to trade on this and say you have to have faith in your faith, and if you believe, right. you can create your own reality, and God is going to make you the head, not the tail. You're going to be the lender, not the borrower, and so on. Uh, you can have perfect health and maximum wealth, and usually they're saying it uh, behind a loose side pulpit. They're going to leave and fly on their 737 jet to their next crusade. So people go, wow, sure seems to be working for them. And being the lender, not the borrower, is a partial reference to Malachi. Yeah, but uh, the, the, the bottom line, though, is, is this. Does God bless his people? Yes. Uh, does God bless us according to his wisdom and according to his plan mm-hmm. that not only is going to bless us, say, maybe physically, but also spiritually, making us more like Christ? Does God want to bless us, not just with an eye to where we're going to be next week, but with an eye to where we're going to spend forever. Yeah. God wants to bless us in that way. And God chooses some pretty interesting paths to get us there. You know, I think about Hebrews chapter 11. You talk about the faith movement. <laughs> this, this is the faith chapter, right? But, but listen to what it says about people who walked by faith. Uh, in verse 32, it says, What more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lion, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, women received their dead, raised to life again. Now, usually that's where the period comes and say, see, you can have the same thing if you send away for my book, How Do You Write Your Own Ticket with God? Mm. But the next verse says this, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had a trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom this world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. So you got people that experience God's deliverance in a temporal sense. God can do that. I don't begrudge God doing that. Uh, God also tells us about people that were going to honor him because they did not and still held on to their faith. And, uh, and, you know, sometimes, because God wants to reach people with his love, he'll bless us, and people will be blown away by the blessing, the healing that happens, the deliverance that comes, uh, a financial breakthrough. God is able to do all of these things if it's going to further people understanding who he is. On the other side of the coin, your mileage may vary, but in my life, uh, the greatest impact that I've ever had uh, regarding uh, the gospel, especially with my family and friends, didn't happen when I was riding high. It was mm. when I was really down low and just held on to Jesus with both hands. You know, then they figured out I wasn't a sunshine soldier for the Savior. Well, of course he's a Christian. Everything's working out great for him. Who wouldn't want to be a Christian when everything's rolling your way? But when it's not, and you see the the durability and the power 
uh, that Jesus has to comfort us and strengthen us to mm. take that next step, even when things seem very bleak and very dark. And man, I've been there. Uh, God, I think, uses, in, in, in my experience, God uses that more than those times where we can say, hey, look at me, you know, look at my, uh, my uh, credit score. I'm uh, on top of the world uh, here. Uh, people want to see something's real. Mm. And uh, sometimes the only time we see something's real in a relationship with God is uh, when we're going through trials and tribulations. So don't, mm. uh, Bobby, I, I'm just sharing this because I had to learn this the hard way. Uh, trust God, trust his promises, but even more importantly, see his promises in context. Just like you said, Sean, understand what he's telling you he will do and, what, and don't make the mistake of thinking he's gonna do things that he never promised he was going to do. Ted Turner, founder of TBS, professing atheist. You ask him why he's an atheist, you know why? Because he said when he was a kid, his sister got sick. He prayed for God to heal his sister. And what happened? She died. Hmm. said, my faith died with my sister. Because he got that promise in writing, didn't he? Well, you know, and I, again, I, I have a lot of empathy for people that go through these things, but we make a huge error when we think we can tell God his business and that we don't see the big picture. Yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah, and the, the, like you said, I love what you said, the, the blessing is you know, God's purpose in our life to become more like him and then growing our knowledge of him. And you reminded me of, um, I've had the privilege of going on mission trip you know, several times. Back in 96, uh, went to the Dominican Republic and, and helped to build an orphanage. And the couple there who ran this orphanage, a Christian couple, um, had the, the blessing of experiencing what it's like to have no food for these kids, pray to God for provision, hear a rustling outside, open the front door, and there's two chickens and a bag of rice. You know, these are the stories. We, some, we don't, no. I've never, <laughs> I've never, I mean, I've done DoorDash, but I've never prayed for that and seen that kind of yeah we see know. two chickens in a bag of rice we think it's a halloween prank <laughs> exactly <laughs> what's in it so that yeah. is you know that that is the blessing to to see um things like that and that comes out of need it comes out of you know difficult situations so bobby thanks so much for uh, that question we do appreciate it because it's uh it, it moves our show along we have a question here on facebook from craig um he says am i right that there are no female angels. Yes, you are right, Craig. Uh, angels are spiritual entities, not physical ones, and female is a biological description of gender. I know that's going to get us kicked off YouTube and Facebook, but here I am trying to be Micaiah. Uh, when we're talking about this, there's two passages people will go to that would suggest it. The first is in Zechariah 5, and the other is in Revelation chapter 9. The problem is both contexts are talking about demons if you take the Zechariah passage to not just be a symbolic vision. Uh, this is Zechariah 5 and verse 5. The angel who was talking with him came out and said to him, Lift up your eyes now. What is it that you see goes forth? And he said, What is it? And he said, It's a basket going forth. And it says, This is their resemblance throughout the earth. There's a lead disc lifted up, and this is a woman sitting inside the basket. Then he said, This is wickedness. And he thrust her down into the basket, threw the lead covering over its mouth. He raised his eyes and looked, and there were two women coming with the wind in their wings, 
or they had wings like the wings of a stork, and then they carried the basket away. And it goes on to describe this is the Babylonian captivity. Now, what's interesting about storks is that among the Levitical law, they're of the sort of birds you don't want to eat. They were unclean creatures. Right. So commentators, if you were to say that this isn't just symbols, this is an actual spiritual phenomenon, which I don't necessarily agree with, but these pictures of angels, Could be, but, women yeah. with stork-like wings, those are unclean animals, and you have to follow the symbol to its logical end. If those are ungodly things or things for not God's people, that's not a good thing. And the woman who's in the basket is literally labeled wickedness. Yeah, so if there's an associated feature that's not helpful. The second is in Revelation 9, where we're described the uh, fifth trumpet judgment, where locusts are sent on the earth coming out of the abyss, and it says they had hair like women's hair. Now, I've seen not only people, but also musicians and also friends who had long hair like women's hair, and from John's sensibilities, that is a female, a feminine characteristic. It doesn't mean that it's a description of their biology or chromosomes. So it's a lot of inference as far as there being female angels in this. What's conclusive about angels is A, they're spiritual beings, and B, the concept of female is introduced to creation for the purpose of what? In Genesis 2, to be fruitful and multiply. Angels don't do that. In uh, Matthew chapter 22 and verse 30, Jesus clarifies that in the glorified state will be like the angels that are neither married nor given in marriage. So there's no, you know, boys and girls club of the heavenly host, if you will. And what's also important to note is that the only angels we're told about, demons apart, righteous angels. The first is Michael, which we're never given a physical description of. The Jewish traditions have some attempts, but that's all well and good. The second is Gabriel, who is described repeatedly in the book of Daniel and in the first chapter of the book of Luke as a man, meaning not that he was a human, but that he looked like a man in his appearances to the people who saw him. Uh, The man Gabriel is how he's introduced in Daniel, so not very subtle. It's not the woman. So emphasize that point. The only angel we're given an actual description of is Gabriel, and he's described as a man, not because that's his gender, but because that's how he appeared. Uh, We're given allusions and proof texts in these side sources, but none of them are either A, literal, or B, if you do take them literally, or in a spiritual sense, referring to actual entities, they're not good things, and I'd be more gracious to the fairer sex in saying, I think that's just not a thing. And of course, the purpose of there being a female human being is, of course, for procreation, which angels don't. So that's why I'd say, no, Greg, you're right. There are no female angels. Yeah, the, the vast majority, the only thing I throw in here in this world where everyone's obsessed with pronouns is mm-hmm. uh, the uh, pronouns that are used to describe angels are pretty much across the board, with the exceptions you've mentioned, masculine. Mm-hmm. Um, does, does that mean that they are masculine in the same sense that we are? No, because of the reasons that you've uh, elucidated, Sean. But uh, when they saw, uh, Daniel saw Gabriel, and he said he had an appearance as a man, that was something that Daniel can obviously relate to. Does and that, he was real shiny. Yeah. Does it does it mean that there aren't those who manifest themselves in the sense of a woman? We don't know. Mm-hmm. We we simply don't know. Uh, the closest that comes to it is that passage in Zechariah, and that's so iffy because of the reasons that you've mentioned. Mm-hmm. I certainly wouldn't want to build a doctrine on that. Uh, I think the, the the kicker just goes back to what you mentioned in Matthew 23, uh, that in the angel in the resurrection, 
those who are part of it, neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. Um, there's something that transcends, in a sense, what we understand as our definitions of gender um, that'll be going on in heaven. It's Matthew 23. Yeah, Matthew 22. I'm 22, sorry. verse 22 30. 22 and verse 30, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that yeah. comes up a lot with the Nephilim question, so it's ingrained in here. Yeah. Uh, any other uh, questions? Yeah, thank you for that question. I have a question from Keith. This is a good, um, this is a good question for kind of what we do here. Um, he was referring to, I think it was, I think you're right in saying, Keith, Monday night show, we ended the show talking about this. He says, why is asking questions only God knows the answer to a waste of time? I was late to Monday's broadcast. Uh, Scott, please clarify. Um, is avoiding uh, foolish questions also apply to hypothetical and unanswered questions? And if you remember, we we talked about these questions that just take you on like yeah, a rabbit trail and it's kind of, you yeah. know, what kind of thing. Yeah, it's, it's good, not the... You know, generally, if I can, if I understand your question, Keith, like, what is a good question, a bad question? What are questions that we shouldn't really worry about? What Are we wasting our time getting into all these details? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think any question that uh, causes us to think biblically mm. is not a bad question. Mm. Yeah, the, the question is not only in the question, the Bible, but the substance of the answer is also found in yeah. the Bible. Yeah. We don't want to do hypotheticals. Yeah, because... having said that, we we're talking about hypotheticals that come up uh, you know, the, the queen of all hypotheticals that people hear is, can God make a rock so big he can't lift it? Which is saying, could God not be himself? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, anyway. Uh, that the, And like we say, there is an answer to that question. But usually someone that's throwing out that kind of hypothetical isn't really looking for an answer. They're looking for a conversation stopper. It's like saying, who created God? You know, it's, it's not asking for information. Uh, what they're saying is nobody can ever answer uh, this this question, and so let's move on from there. Or in my experience, they've heard the answer 50 times and ignored it, including the 51st, which you're now the victim of. Yeah, so uh, when I talk about questions uh, that aren't going to get you anywhere, uh, you got to ask yourself a question about the questions <laughs> you're spending time uh, exploring. Uh, when I was in seminary, for instance, uh, one of the questions that would always come up would be, and you know, it was like, oh boy, we're really going to get into the nitty gritty, is can you still be a Christian and do fill in the blank some questionable activity that probably nobody in their right mind would ever want to do if Jesus was on the scene? Hmm. But can you still be a Christian and do that? And, you know, and I used to engage in, you know, because I was in youth ministry and it just seemed very relevant and, and so on. And a lot of the questions that would be asked in, uh, in youth ministry settings were along those lines and you know and so we'd explore all of that and you know where is the line and what is the gray area and and can we you know and one time in the middle of these conversations it just dawned on me wait a minute the essence of this question is how far away can i get from god and still be in mm. that's the, the the question is being asked where's the 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 line that you cross in a sense, and uh, lose your salvation, for lack of a better term. Uh, you know, the, the, the thing that I discovered, and, and it saved me so much time, effort, and energy, uh, and, and endless hours debating these things, is this. I would just, I always, always bring this up. I'd say, okay, so we're asking, how far away from God can we be and still be in? Shouldn't we really be asking in whatever moral issue you're involved with Shouldn't we be asking, what does it mean for me to draw close to God? Right. 
when I'm facing this temptation, when the world is saying, okay, go ahead and do excellent, what does it mean for me to draw close to God? Mm -hmm. To love him even when I don't want to at the moment. That's always Mm -hmm. the key. So, you know, when we're asking questions like that, we're getting somewhere. When we're getting into, you know, philosophies and theories and, and endless really un- genealogies, endless gene- you know, unanswerable <laughs> questions. Sounds familiar. Uh, you know, we're kind of wasting our time. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I've noticed, and maybe it's because, uh, you know, I had my Beatles birthday recently. I turned 64. I realized I don't have an unlimited amount of time here on this planet. I might as well invest myself in things that are far more important and significant than, you know, trying to answer how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. I, I've run into some of those pinheads who spend their time thinking about questions like this, but it doesn't get us anywhere, really. And if I'm spending all my time in these bowl sessions, if you will, on these kind of issues, well, I'll tell you where I'm not spending my time. I'm not spending my time praying. I'm not spending my time in God's Word. I'm not spending time loving my family. Mm. I'm not spending time reaching out to the lost with the good news of Jesus. Mm. Because as soon as you say yes to one thing, and this is, I think, where wisdom comes in, we really have to realize we're saying no to something else. And to me, getting involved with hypotheticals and, and questions like this, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, for instance. Uh, there were those who locked themselves in monasteries, spent their whole life trying to figure out the answer to that waste of life mm. personally because even if you came up with an answer what difference would it make right. how does that lead a single person to christ how does that comfort a single hurting person how does that glorify god mm. uh in a world that's lost and in darkness yeah so i wouldn't glorify god even in the new jerusalem we'll be busy we'll have yeah. other things to worry about yeah. and we won't really care yeah. yeah yeah and uh, you know i think we mentioned this but uh this is a a, uh, a tagline from uh, Chuck Smith that, that really uh, resonated with me uh, on a lot of these things. We won't know till we get there, and when we get there, we won't care. Mm. I love it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. One more question before we sign off. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to mention Actually, too, maybe two more. There's, yep. um, yeah, if, if time allows. There's, there's a, a principle in the Bible as well about being puffed up. You know, just puffed up with knowledge for knowledge's sake. You know, I think that's a that's a knowledge a puffs up, but love edifies. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. So I love I love that though, what you said. The motive. What's the motivation behind the question? Yeah. Thank you, Keith, for that question. Um, Tammy, uh, why would God put me in a relationship with someone who doesn't like me? Trying to witness to someone in my family. Thanks, guys. Okay, so we can speak at this at a distance, not condemn you personally. Uh, if you're in a relationship, this is a very common thing that God put me in this situation. No, you did. And that's the first thing I think you can emphasize to your yeah. relative in a gracious way, Tammy, but still understand the difference when you say God's responsible for my mistakes as opposed to God can redeem my bad decisions and make them into something that glorifies him. The question isn't, why would God put me in this situation that I now regret? It's, how can God use me in this situation? Exactly. Always the goal of trials, even if uh, it's the one you're waking up to in the morning. Yeah, and, and you know, we don't know the nature of the relationship. Could be a family member, just likes to push uh, their buttons and, and so on. You know, one of the things I've discovered is this. Sometimes the most irritating people in my life are uh, God's tools, to make me like Jesus. Mm. If all I encountered were people that thought like I did, had the same sense of humor, uh, were very easy to get along with, uh, man, uh, that would be a breeze, but that ain't 
what life on planet Earth is like. I think James Russell Lowell once said, uh, whatever you may be sure of, be sure of this, you are dreadfully like other people. Uh, you know, in Proverbs 27 and verse 17, we're told as iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. Uh, iron sharpening iron is not a soft <laughs> and gentle process. Yeah. And sometimes we do need those people that love us enough to rub us, in a sense, the wrong way, but maybe they're rubbing us the, the right way. Right. And John Corson talked about how, uh, and Peter, uh, we're talking about how God is making us a temple of living stones. Uh, and the problem with living stones is they move around a lot. Mm. And when they move around a lot, they tend to rub on each other. Now that can either just be irritation or you can say, well, maybe I need a little polishing up. Yeah. And then yeah. Uh, one more from Yari. Uh, go ahead. I don't have it in front of me. If All you right. Do. Um, on YouTube, uh, his grandparents prayed a prayer regarding by your stripes we are healed, no weapon formed against you will prosper, and they worked. Uh, was this a misinterpretation or was it even a demonic miracle? And the answer, Yari, again, simply put, is no. Look up the incident involving the woman with the flow of blood for a series of years when she said, I'll touch the hem of his garment and then I'll be healed. Jesus stopped everything and said, your faith is what made you well, not the object in which you were touching. Yeah. Now, understand if you were healed and you say it worked, that's a very subjective attribute. Uh, you, you get the idea. Yeah. It's not a solid answer. If on the other hand, you'd say, well, God can bless me even if my prayers aren't accurate theologically. It's just like, oh, there's a formatting error. I'm just going to let that kid get sick until their parents get their doctrine straight. No, God can still be good. Understand the implications. Understand the application. Understand the full context of Scripture. And A, don't make the same mistake, but B, don't draw a mistake from God being gracious. Right. Yari, hope that helps you out. Thank you, everyone, for your questions today. What a great hour it's been. Thank you for joining us. Join us next time. Monday through Friday, 5 to 6, and the reason for hope. God bless you guys. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.